Hello and welcome to our wily and windy edition of the Bunkers Weekly Culture Special with me, Andrew Harrison. And me, Sean Pattenden. This week we're delighted to welcome actor and performer Lucy McCormack, who stars as Catherine in the frankly astonishing new production of Wuthering Heights that's just transferred to the National Theatre. Journo Michael Han joins us to raise devil fingers to his new book, Denim and Leather, the rise and fall of the new wave of British heavy metal. Plus, we listen to the new album from Johnny Marr and confess to our Teenage Rebellion records. What albums fired us up to go kicking a can down our local high street? Welcome to hell, it's the Culture Bunker. More than a feeling. Today, we have the incredibly versatile actor and singer and star of the National Theatre's adaptation of Wuthering Heights, Lucy McCormack in the studio. Hello, Lucy. Hello. Welcome to have you. Well, good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have to confess, I'm not a full-time theatre person. In fact, I'm a very part-time theatre person. <laughs> that makes me think very highly of you. Oh, that's, very, that's very kind of you. I was, I was blown away by this production. It is... It is all the medals. It's everything in terms of spectacle <laughs> performance. So the songs, there's dancing, there's terror. Yeah, we're um, showing off. We're showing off. This is like three hours of of singing, dancing, leaping, ghosts. How <laughs> how are you able to keep the energy levels up for this? It's a workout, let's put it that way. <laughs> mm. And um, now that we've done it for sort of four weeks, I'm sweating a bit less than mm. at the beginning. But yeah, I'm getting quite fit, basically. What attracted you to the character of uh, mental between <laughs> life and death avatar of passion gone wild, Catherine Enshaw? Yeah, I tend to get cast as dysfunctional, quite unlikable people. So I try not to take that too personally. Um, but what can I say? It seems to come naturally. No, it's an amazing part, isn't it? Yeah, she starts off as a ghost. Uh, go back to the the childhood and then she has a slow sort of nervous breakdown so I mean you know there's lots to get into there's lots of material yeah Yeah. I mean what were the early discussions about about the the production happening why do it Mm. now why revisit this piece in in contemporary terms well I think all these sort of you know, good writing and classic novels and stuff, they, they're sort of universal, aren't they? And that's why they stick around. So it's a lot about pride, I would say. And, um, you know, obviously Heathcliff mm. is outsider and you sort of follow his his journey, trying to be accepted and, um, I don't know, they're all kind of victims of patriarchy and, you know, all of this stuff is completely still relevant. Yeah. So... I think it's a very relevant story, but obviously Emma has adapted it and put it on in this kind of super theatrical, quite modern mm. way. In a way, it, you know, it has traditional elements, but then it has, you know, the singing and the dancing and the kind of more modern little twists coming in. Well, it runs till the 19th of March and then it goes on tour. We're going to be talking about it a little bit more uh, in, in depth later. And he's back. He's back in Denham and other cow-based fabrics. He writes for The Guardian and Spectator, amongst others. And he's just published Denim and Leather. The Rise and Fall of the New Wave of British Heavy Metal. It is a long title. Hello, Michael Han. Hello, Sean. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Now, you have been on this podcast before and you've been talking about this book for a while. <laughs> are you pleased that it's finally out? I am delighted it's finally out. I, I spent most of lockdown writing, spent most of lockdown tra- tracking down old men of heavy metal <laughs> and talking to them about what happened to them between 1978 and 1982. Uh, and sometimes it was quite a journey finding them. 
Phil Cope of Witchfinder General, mm. a band I know you're all familiar with. <laughs> a man very hard to find. Even you couldn't the, find Witchfinder General. <laughs> even through the official Witchfinder General website. Mm. Eventually, someone told me that there had been a Witchfinder General beer from a microbrewery in Stourbridge, and they must have had to license the name oh, so right. they would have a contact for Phil Cope. And indeed, they did. So That's you find a Witchfinder Finder. Uh, Witchfinder Finder. It's my new web app, Witchfinder Finder. <laughs> find a Witchfinder within five miles of any location in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually, you have preempted my question. Who was the most difficult? You just told me. How is that? I mean, do you wake up every morning and think, I'll just phone Rob Halford from Judas Priest? Well, is he easy to get? Uh, well, Rob Where Halford, are they all Rob Halford I had to cheat and I had to get oh. him by doing an interview for someone else. Ah, um, Riley, But then. there were that many interviews like that. Most people really happy to talk because obviously mm. for a lot of these people, what happened in the new wave of British heavy metal in the late 70s and early 80s was the biggest thing in their musical career. Yeah. But then there were other people like Def Leppard who, whose publicist said, well, I'll sort you out for half an hour with each with three of them. Mm. And half an hour wasn't enough. I mean, most of my interviews were running like three, four hours. Right. Uh, so at the end of each half an hour, I said to the members of Def Leppard, would it be possible to speak to you some more? Yeah, sure, that's fine. Can we do it without me having to go to your publicist who'll go to your management who'll go to you and then you'll go back to your management and they'll go back to your publicist mm. and they'll come back to me because that'll take forever. And all three of them were... Yeah, sure. Here, here's my phone number. Here's my email. Just, just get in contact when you yeah. want to do some more. Which from a an a, re, a stadium yeah. band actually still in America. Mm -hmm. Stadium band is just absolutely incredible. And um, a measure of how nice they were is that a couple of months after interviewing Rick Savage of Def Leppard, um, I was watching the cricket. Mm -hmm. I sent a text to my friend Jeff about the poor form of Joe Denley, the Kent batsman who failed twice in one text in one Test match. And I got a text back um, from Rick Savage of Def Leppard saying, "I don't think this was for me." <laughs> But while we're on the subject, can you think of any good reason why Johnny Besto isn't batting at five for England, apart from anti-Yorkshire bias? So, I love Def Leppard now. I love Def Leppard. They're the nicest people in the world. Wow. Well, we'll be talking to you a little bit more in a second. But before we crack on, a small mention, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early, without adverts, when you support us on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture and more every day. Plus, we have merch, useful mugs, beautiful T-shirts. All you need to do is search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. OK, battle jackets at the ready. Come with us back to the early 80s and the distant days of the new wave of British heavy metal, where men were men and so were women. <laughs> Michael Hans' denim and leather chronicles the rise and fall of Nwobum. Am I saying that right? Nwobum. Nwobum. Yeah. Taken in Venom, Saxon, Maiden, Priest, Leopard, several variations on Witchfinder General, Motorhead and Girl School. One of the most affecting stories is that of Diamond Head, the great lost geniuses of the scene. And special thanks to Brian Tatler of Diamond Head, who has kindly given us permission to play a short bit of their masterpiece, Am I Evil? The full seven-minute deathcore epic is on the rolling playlist. The link is in the show notes. Here are 30 seconds of it, if you can take it. Yes, I am. Michael, you suggested this as the emblematic new wave of British heavy metal tune. Why is that? I was amazed how much I liked this, by the way. Well, it looks back to Led Zeppelin and classic rock and those big song structures, but also it's fast and aggressive. It's not mired in, you know, 
ooh, ricket-legged mama, won't you ease my pain? There's none of that. Um, and it looks forward to Metallica and thrash metal. I mean, it's, it's the link between old and new metal, that song. And, mm. and Diamond Heads, as was hinted at, is one of the most pathos-ridden stories in rock music. I was reading it because I was, I mean, I liked everything about this book. As you can see, my copy of it is actually covered in stout, <laughs> which I thought I managed to spill a pint of stout over it, which is a very, very nwobum thing to do. But I enjoyed this book so much. The music is not my kind of music by a long, long chalk. But that's that story in particular, Diamond Head, and also people like Venom, this ludicrous cartoon outfit who can't actually really play and yet are so influential. What dragged you to make you... Fly the flag for these guys. Well, I, w- I was into this stuff when I was a kid. Mm. I mean, the, the the dedication at the front is to the three kids I knew at school who played this stuff to me in the very first place. Um, I did then get into John Peel and I moved away from metal. And as you know, Andrew, from knowing me as an adult, that I, I have moved back towards rock. But what happened with this book was I'd written a piece for The Guardian, which was an oral history of the new wave of British heavy metal, 2,000 words, uh, so 148,000 words shorter than this. Uh, an agent got in touch with me and said, there's a book in this. And so I did a proposal, Little Brown did it, and suddenly it's, oh, my God, I have to write this book now. I, I actually have to go around finding every single one of these people. They, the, most of these people are absolutely lovely, I have to say. And there's no one I can... The, the most doesn't mean to say there are some who were awful. <laughs> I mean, most were really lovely and some were just lovely. Mm. Um, but Diamond Head were, were... Brian Tatler was one of the few interviews I got to do face-to-face because then we had the pandemic. And I went up to his house in, um, in Stourbridge, where he still lives, and he showed me all this stuff. And it, it's amazing. He has this archive. Of, he collected everything that Diamond Head ever, ever did. So, like, the first four years of their career, they didn't play any gigs. They just sat in their bedroom designing their own posters and designing their own album covers and making set lists of all the songs that they got. And he showed me all that stuff. And Diamond Head were great. But, of course, the reason they didn't make it is because of their management. Um, their management was the singer's mum <laughs> and her boss and lover at the cardboard box factory where she worked. And they really had no idea what to do with Diamond Head. Now, Peter Mensch, who managed ACDC and Def Leppard to huge success, wanted to take on Diamond Head. But... They stayed loyal to the singer's mum. Wouldn't sack the singer's mum. That's almost heartbreaking. That's bad news tour. Stuff, it is, isn't it? but but Diamond Head are not bitter because mm. what happened to them was that in later years, Metallica covered four of their songs oh. on albums. With the result that no one, that Sean and Brian from Diamond Head, who wrote the songs, have never had to do a day's honest work in their lives. Despite never actually selling any records for themselves, the royalties from Metallica have been enough mm. to keep them in a living this whole time. They 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 they've continued to make music. Diamond Head still, Brian Tatler is now Diamond Head. He continues to release records. Sean Harris, I think, records but never puts anything out. He's just not interested in the music. That's very metal. Anymore. Tell us about Venom then. These kind of, this, <laughs> they have, they're all called Abaddon and things. Abaddon, aren't they? Mantas, and Kronos. And Venom are one of the most influential groups in music history because all. Citation needed. But yeah, all, it's no, it's true. All extreme metal comes from Venom. So all the Norwegian black metal all the ultra-fast speed metal, you know, everything that sounds like absolutely appalling, horrible noise basically comes from Venom because no one had done anything like that. And if you think how the first Venom records must have sounded in 1981, and now they just sound like scrappily recorded records, but in 1981, to people who were there, they sounded like the apocalypse. Um, <laughs> and Venom behaved like the apocalypse. Uh, they formed in, 90, in the late 70s. They didn't play in London until 1985. They determined they would never play in London until they could play the Hammersmith Odeon. And they basically didn't play anywhere. What they would do would be rehearse all the time in church halls in Newcastle, but with their full stage setup for the gigs they weren't playing. So a nine-foot drum riser made out of steel. In a room with nobody in it. In a room with nobody in it. 
all the pyro. They brought down roofs in, yes. in rehearsal rooms because they were letting off all their pyro. And there is the amazing story of their first ever visit to America to play at Staten Island where an enthusiastic roadie had overloaded their homemade pyros. Where they had they had pots of paint with the paint that filled with gunpowder and a, a wire and a fuse stuck into them. An over-enthusiastic over roadie double-filled the pots and so when they lit them at the start of the show, one pot, which wasn't well secured, flew out of the stage and embedded itself in the back room of the theatre in Staten Island. If there'd been anyone sitting in the balcony, they would have died. Another pot powered downwards, smashed through the stage into a water pipe beneath the stage, which exploded, causing a geezer to come up <laughs> through the bottom. And that was only the first night. <laughs> Lucy, no spoilers, but there is an amazing hair metal bit in Wuthering Heights where you get it full Bonnie Tyler, don't you? With an actual wind machine. Yeah. How metal, yeah. How metal I are you? Michael should come. Definitely. Would enjoy. Yeah. How, how metal are you on the quiet? Right, I don't know anything about any of the stuff you were just talking about. But I mean, it's super, super interesting and I want to read the book now. But no, it's really fun to rock out. We kind of made that. Mm song together in the room me and the the guy that wrote all the music ian ross and at the beginning it was just the quieter bit of the song you yeah. remember and then it gets much more kind of rocky at the end and i just said to him i think she needs to she's kind of it's like like an exorcism mm. and um yeah we made it together well I would, uh, my next question is how metal is Catherine Enshaw because yorkshire is very metal and she is <laughs> she is yorkshire incarnate and this is the thing yeah. that came out of the yeah. play to me that, that that she is a character who you can actually see now she's a she's mm. a person she's a type yeah but because of when the play is set she doesn't get to be that person and mm. that's so central to her downfall and i think mm. the song actually is this like glimpse into her potential yeah like she could have been a rock star the sort of minute after that song she gets married to edgar um you know the posh yes guy and um you know she has to choose well she decides to choose that life mm. but yeah so i think it's partly about her potential and also you know she's she's stuck mm. she's she she her, her choice is basically shall i marry this man or that man and she will particularly when i mean again slight spoiler when you're dead when you're haunting the stage, yeah, that is, that it, is yeah. very goth and very emo, I think. Oh, it's so goth. Yeah, I love it. Oh, God, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, what, what stuck out for me from the book was that this is like a collection of working class scenes. You know, like Iron Maiden from the East End, Def Leppard from Sheffield, Venom, as you say, from Newcastle. It was the least fashionable music. And the enemy is going on about socialist salsa bands at this point. Is the fact that it was so kind of anathematized part of the attraction? I think for metal metal fans have always liked that sense of exclusion, that sense of us against the world. So, so people who people who aren't in metal, when they slag off metal, you know, they get this wave of "How dare you!" Yeah, within metal, I mean, I remember this from from a kid at the time. Kind of the levels of backbiting, and they're not real metal. They're not real metal. But you know, you would unite against the the outsider to defend even groups that you thought were terrible. Um, <laughs> But the, the working classness of it, I think, is is really important. And um, there there is no one middle class in 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 Wobham, really. Well, there's Bruce Dickinson who got a scholarship to Oundle, and there's Rob Weir of Tigers of Pantang, whose dad was a doctor in Ghana. He worked for right. one of the oil companies, I think. Um, but aside is, isn't from that, David Coverdale a bit on the posh side, or is he no, just, is he just no, putting he, it on? He's, <laughs> he's just taught himself Hello. to talk like Hello. Lord Flashheart. I'm David Coverdale. <laughs> yes, okay. yes, that, that, but that's that's a creation. So he's the Brian Ferry of Northern. He, he is mm. the Brian Ferry of Northern, and from the same that's part of the world good. as well, yeah. the Northeast, completely. But not a single one of these bands met at college. None of them met at university. Mm. You know, they were all people who'd been kids together at school, or they were playing in rubbish cover bands around the pubs, and they'd meet people from other 
rubbish co- rubbish cover bands and go, we could, we could have a band together. You're a good guitarist. He's a good drummer. That's how it happened. It's completely different from what happens now. And it was completely regional. I mean, these days, every single one of these bands would have flocked down to London and had a publicist and a lawyer and an agent at the first drop of it. But these bands were all doing it completely themselves up until the moment the major labels signed them. Mm. You know, they really were. Or in many cases, they were signed by tiny, tiny labels and could never get out of it. And then the hilarity begins. Oh, oh, well, the worst of it all is the bands who signed to to not very good major labels mm. who who then destroy their careers more or less, which is what happened to both Diamond Head and Tigers of Pantang, signed to MCA, the Music Cemetery of America, as that label <laughs> is known. Well, this is one of the things I loved about the book, which is in many ways it is the, the this is the platonic ideal of the band story told over and over <laughs> again. You will live this story over and over. Well, that's the, when I started, I, the proposal that I had that I sent into the publisher is nothing like what actually happened, but it kind of became apparent as I, as I was talking, talking to everyone. That if I, I told the stories of different bands we would end up with fundamentally the same story repeated so what was more interesting was the common thread so it's homemade pyros or the importance of the friday rock show or jeff barton's role at sounds or the monsters of rock festival so pulling out these separate stories almost yeah. standalone rather you don't have to you could read any one of these stories there's a guide to who's who at the front you could read any one of the chapters individually and i think they make sense well the chapter on monsters of rock on its own is just worth the price of admission. <laughs> the dawn of the flying bottle of urine is just a tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny part of this fantastic sale. Denim and Leather by Michael Hahn is available in, in, in all good bookshops and most satanic evil ones as well. It should be bought immediately, I would suggest. Lucy McCormack has the moves of Beyonce, the lungs of Christina Aguilera and the morals of a punk iconoclast. So said the Scotsman. As a comedian, she is fearless. As a performer, she is reckless. She is one of the most extraordinary and extreme performers on the fringe. And we are very pleased to have you here, Lucy McGormack. <laughs> you play Catherine, as we said, in Wuthering Heights. You trained at East 15 Drama School. You're a performance artiste and you are also artist, or you were, artist in residence Friends of the show, Ducky, Mm. in Vauxhall, in London. So very much welcome. Um, As we said, this is quite the experience. And this is quite as we were discussing in the intro, wasn't it? I mean, the word goth did come up more than once, as we've said before. Mm. There is a line in it, if you want romance, go to Cornwall. (laughs) Which made (laughs) everyone go down a storm, that one. (laughs) So what reaction have you got from the audiences who might be expecting something a little bit more restrained? Um, yeah, I think some people do come in mm. thinking they're going to get a traditional play, but hopefully we get them on side. What something I found quite surprising is people have said to me, oh, "I've seen various versions of mm. Wuthering Heights on stage, but I've never seen Catherine played like this." Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I'd read the, the the book, but I'd never seen it on stage, and and I just find that so surprising because when I read the book, I thought, "God, you know, this woman is, yeah. you know, she's constantly in fits and screaming and crying, mm. and she's not this sort of." pretty pretty heroine Mm. which I know is from the start and when Emma cast me and stuff she was like I want her to be wild and and, and, Mm. and, uh, you know she's sort of an outsider as well as Mm. well as Mm. Heathcliff Um, so I found that surprising but also you know um, satisfying to to bring this version Mm -hmm. something that I thought about it really left out to me was that because this is my first encounter with Wuthering Heights since my O level right so it's a lot and that's a long time (laughs) it landing now you realise the extent to which she is uh, you know, she's imprisoned by the place that she's in and the family that she's in and the time that she's in. And yeah, that, patriarchy was a word well, that you used yeah, something earlier, which the is really... The P word, yeah. Um, <laughs> P and word. that she's so... Yeah, as I said, yeah. Um, 
And it just it just struck me as like as extremely relevant because yeah. we see loads of women now who are like that, who are surrounded by and punished by society, not just famous women, but you know, mm. women out in the world. And she just seemed she seemed to be a person of now in a different time. Well, yeah, because you know, women are still oppressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean uh, things are getting better. But um yeah, of course, of course. I mean I suppose we're all oppressed in some way. But um it's totally relevant and we're all sort of trying to fit in to a system, aren't we? Mm. We're all just sort of trying to play by the rules. Um, but those rules don't work for a mm-hmm. lot of people and mm-hmm. sometimes particularly women. But that's true also of Heathcliff. So this has, yeah. and not to mince our words, a black Heathcliff, which I haven't seen before. And it makes total sense mm. that you can take the text of almost 200 years ago and put it in there and say, of course, this is why he's alienated, or some of the reasons why. Mm. This is why he's cast out. That is very striking. How did you work with the character of Heathcliff and did it bring out these more modern things that you wanted to? Um, well, we, uh, yeah, he's black, but it was kind of, it's just in the text, isn't it? It's mm. the story and it does bring a different element mm. to what is going on, absolutely, and that feels, like, important. I don't know, yeah, we just had to mostly build up the kind of intimate connection yeah. between each other yeah. because um, they are both kind of othered by the people around mm-hmm. them. The important thing is how they connect and it kind of felt mm. like if mm. we don't get that relationship, that central relationship kind of the whole play doesn't quite, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it, together. Yeah. So, it's um, about Cathy and Heathcliff, isn't it? Even yeah. though there is a cast of almost thousands. Yeah, it's quite a big, a big yeah. cast. Um, and weirdly, like, we don't get that many scenes together, but it's important to kind mm. of make them count mm. when they... And we do. Was there any point where you thought if this had been set in the present day, everybody would just have some talking therapy <laughs> and maybe they'd go on holiday? Because we are actually, and I think you used the word dysfunction in another interview, this is dysfunction, this is mental illness, some of it. I mean, they yeah. may be driven to it, mm-hmm. but these people on the extremes. Yeah, they are. Um, that's another thing Emma kind of spoke, the director spoke to me about, that mm. she felt that if you were to meet Catherine today... yeah. She probably would be diagnosed with something if you if you look at her mm. behaviour in, mm. in the book. Did you ever see Andrea Arnold's film version of it from twelve or thirteen yeah, years ago? I which did seems actually. To have, yeah, it seems to have a lot of the same themes about like yeah. the wildness and about mm. the, the the pair of them being excluded, and of course the Black yeah. Heathcliff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I liked that film. Um, it was pretty hard going. That film, mm. like it, you know, it's constant sound of the wind for like two yeah. hours. <laughs> two hours. This production, you have so much fun, all of you, and I'm saying sort of as the ensemble cast. Yeah, what are yeah. the most fun bits? Because it isn't, you know, some listeners might be thinking, well, this sounds very doomy. And it no, no, it's not. It's I fun. mean, you know, yeah. there's larks, isn't there? And there are real yeah. gags in it. Yeah. Oh, there's loads of, yeah, no, there's a lot of um, light relief mm. and humour. Mm. And the whole production is just very heightened. Mm. So although you're dealing with kind of death and despair and all of these there's things. It's big, it's over the top, it's theatrical, and that, even if you're sort of doing a death scene, I mean, it's quite fun to play, to be honest. Right, yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not a minimal um, style of <laughs> no, performance, no. and um, it is a lot of fun, and there's always um, 
musical accompaniment mm. or kind of big physical lifts or whatever. It's a, yeah, it's, you get um, lifted across the stage mm. quite a lot, which look really yeah. good. Which I thought, oh, oh, that was a, that's a recurring motif yes. of death, isn't it? You're lifted up and carried yeah. almost into infinity by the mm, cat and yeah. then brought back to earth again. I mean, that's so much part of Emma Rice's style, you know, yeah. to bring in that kind of movement element. I sort of looked at that death, the, death scene and I thought, okay, this is quite challenging, mm-hmm. you know, but good challenge mm. for an actor. Mm. And then, of course, it's not just that. It's and while you do this monologue, you'll be lifted up and yeah. turned around <laughs> Something. Oh yeah. God! Um, but it's yeah, a good job we're not a video movie. podcast, actually, listeners, because you'd be able to see Lucy actually performing in her seat. <laughs> you are doing it. Um, how close is that character? You say you do identify with this, Kathy, because you do your own stage performances. And tell us about what you do yourself and when you're just being yeah. Lucy McCormick yeah. on stage. So I perform in sort of cabaret contexts, mm. in nightclubs, and also in theatres. Or I sort of do these more cabaret acts and I've then I've made sort of more hour long shows and mm. taken them to Edinburgh Fringe and mm. Soho Theatre and places like that. A lot of my shtick has been around the idea of doing historical reenactments. Yeah. Um which obviously sounds very geeky and it is geeky, but yeah. then I'm kind of doing them via pop culture, pop music, um DIY mm, aesthetic, mm. they're kind of messy and stupid. Mm. Mm. Um, so my first show, I, w- the premise was I was going to reenact the New Testament, playing all <laughs> the main roles myself. Um, yeah. And post-popular, yeah. um, the stupid premise was I'm going to perform every woman in history. <laughs> uh, so they're just very, very uh, silly, mm. sort of impossible shows. Mm. Mm. Um, Who are the highlights of every woman in history then? Yeah. Who, who made the <laughs> Who's the best woman in history? Yeah. Uh, well, I play Anne Boleyn getting my, um, you know, being beheaded. Um, I have a look at Eve. I do Boudicca. Boudicca's probably the highlight, to be honest. Um, storm yeah. the audience. Actually, that's where I, I play a bit of Slayer. I know that American oh, well. uh, metal, yeah. but yeah. Uh, yeah, Slayer yeah. comes into that show. A lot of murdering. Yeah, lo- yeah, a lot of murder and death, and uh, yeah, <laughs> we're sensing a out. theme. Yeah, <laughs> all, of favorite, all of our favorite things. Death and comedy is basically my my thing. Fair enough. So this is going on regional tour. What do you do after that? Oh God, don't ask an oh, actor like what they're going to do. <laughs> oh, sorry, that's <laughs> no, the wrong thing. <laughs> no, I've got a few things. Yeah, you know, I've got yeah a few of my own performances. Mm. Uh, but actually, yeah, not not that much. Look, for me to know what I'm doing right. until June, that's pretty good fine, going for me. Fine. Do you know what I mean? It's not important to us either. You just do what you need to do and won't pile on the pressure of what you'll be doing in September and worrying about Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm really, as I say, Andrew and I are not necessarily theatre people all the time, but it's amazing it's on the National <laughs> Theatre until March the 19th go and it's such a hoot you will not be disappointed you will come back sort of full of fire I felt quite like it is a wild wind machine <laughs> of a production that plasters you into your seats it is very metal yeah, it is very, very I particularly metal. like yeah. the, the personification of the Yorkshire Moor mm. as yes. a woman as a mm-hmm. black woman, a black Yorkshire woman, I am the Yorkshire Moor. Mm. Yes, you are. Yeah. And she becomes the chorus also, and the leads. Also, the band are great. Can we just say the band are great? And your no, drama amazing. is yeah. fantastic, isn't oh, she? Oh, she's fantastic. <gasps> you know, we should we... talk about the music because the music is quite yes, elbow, I thought. I thought the music was very, yeah. it went from elbow up to, to, to rock elbow. Yeah. You can imagine rock uh, yeah, elbow, yeah. 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 Big the music in the show is yes. amazing. It's so beautiful. Because sometimes it could be done quite badly. You know no, what I mean? We think it's a musical, and, you go, oh, and it's not like that at no, all. No, no, it's yeah. not really musical theatre. Mm. It's almost—it's got more of a kind of folk um, yeah. inspiration behind a lot of it. Mm. But yeah, the music's stunning. Mm. It is—it is very metal. It's also—it's also folk horror, Wuthering Heights. Yeah, mm. and it's very meta. 
It's meta metal. It's meta metal. It's heavy meta. <laughs> heavy <laughs> meta. Right, let's have some pop music. We always ask our guests to bring in a current favourite tune each week so they can show how connected and with it and trendy they are. <laughs> um, as regular listeners know, we are in a constant war of attrition with the music business, which sometimes lets us clear the clips and sometimes doesn't. But we always put all the tracks onto our rolling playlists, which are now on both Spotify and Tidal. Now, Lucy, I'm afraid it's bad news for you because the track you've chosen, they haven't cleared it for us, but... You chose Robin with Send to Robin Immediately from the album Honey. All right, yeah. Tell us about this. I'm going to stick it on the playlist. Well, it's just because you were saying, what am I listening to a lot at the moment? And I spend most of my day warming up, to be honest, because the show is, it's quite demanding. And I like a sad banger to warm up <laughs> <Yes>. to. <laughs> you know, it needs to feel a bit emo, but it needs to have a bit of a beat, but nothing too heavy. And Robin's kind of perfect for that. And this this is a bit of an album track, but I, I love it. I think mm. it's such a, it's quite a sort of a emotional song she is the empress of sad bangers yes yeah, really we actually yeah. warm up for the very very draining podcast by listening to sad bangers don't we which is, is equally i mean it's physically draining. extremely exerting really if you could see yeah unbelievable so send to robin immediately from the album honey is going onto yeah. the playlist michael han you're in luck because we can play yours what have you got uh nigel by scott levine about whom i know absolutely nothing other than from his voice is obviously english and that the song being called nigel suggests he's english as well also suggests he's probably not in the first flush of youth because no one is called Nigel anymore. Um, I often reflect on the fact that Nigel as a name has disappeared. Where have all the Nigels gone? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's not a bad thing. Apologies to any Nigels listening, but Nigel is an ugly name. But there used to be be lots of Nigels. I mean, the greatest Nigel is Nigel Gresley, of course, who designed the Mallard. Um, The greatest Nigel is Nigel Molesworth, the gorilla of 3B. Is it not the making plans for Nigel? Nigel Slater. Nigel Slater. So many Nigel's. But I I like this song. It made me laugh. I think it's funny. It reminds me of Ian Jury, but perhaps without the scabrousness and edge, um, it's a little bit sarcastic. Uh, The whole album is in a fairly similar vein. I mean, it's it's amiable kind of pubbish rock. I'm not going to suggest, well, this album will change your life, because it won't. Um, (laughs) But if you like to hear someone with kind of well-observed lyrics and amiable music, then it it really is an album worth listening to. It won't change your life, but that's great, because I don't want my life changed. No. It will make your life nicer. Yes. And isn't that really the most we can hope for? That's the most important, (laughs) particularly in these times. This is Scott Levine with Nigel. Janet's in the parlour, yeah, she's getting a new tattoo. The name of her true love to go with the other 22. She's had Nigel in the kitchen, she's had Nigel in her bed. With his name on her neck, she'll still have it when she's dead. It's strange what people do. Get their kicks. Good news for mod dads, northern glam rockers, people who care about nice trousers, people with good haircuts, and people who want to hang on to the last grains of the Smiths without having to abandon their entire teenage years because of you-know-who. There's a new Johnny Marr album out, Fever Dreams Part 1-4. to is his fourth record as a standalone proposition after decades wandering from thither to electronic to the healers to modest mouse, the cribs, and perhaps a brief period on loan to Oldham Athletic. <laughs> Fever Dreams is what used to be called a double album, and it collects a series of four-track EPs that he's been releasing since the end of 2021. What will we make of it? Here is an excerpt of Sensory Street, full track, of course, on the rolling playlists.
Michael Han, as guitar music goes, this is not the red meat, blood and thunder that you prefer. But what, what did you think? Did you enjoy it? Well, you, you, you're painting me into a corner there, Andrew, and you're forgetting the fact that the Smiths were the single most important group of my teenage years. And I went to see the Smiths live, and I've been to see Johnny Marr live multiple times as well. So, so let's not make it sound like I'm the person coming here from the outside, <laughs> casting his eye on this jangly indie. <laughs> Um, the first thing about Johnny Marr is the enormous amount of goodwill um, that he has. I mean, he enables you to like the Smiths without having to confront um, <coughs> you know Him, what. that guy, yeah. But I think part of that means that his work is received a little more generously than perhaps it should be. Um, I think he writes, he writes great music still. I love listening to Johnny Marr play guitar. But, you know, you think of Johnny Marr's best work, and it is with dramatic and characterful singers, He Who Cannot Be Named, or Matt Johnson, mm. the, the, or Chrissy Hind. And his own voice is, isn't is actually strong enough. Um, he It works well when he's being wistful. I think it's the penultimate track of the... No, the final track, Human. Yeah, Human, yeah. When he's singing softly, when the music is soft. But when, when everything is being more upbeat, he's just not strong enough. And also... Again, he's worked with some of the best lyricists in pop, and his own lyrics are not great. Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad album. It's not. I mean, I, but it's like all Johnny Marr albums. I really enjoy listening to it, but I wish there was the spark of a great writer and great song or a great singer alongside him. And the stuff on his solo records I've liked best have been where you can actually feel his own personality coming through. There's a track called Newtown Velocity on his yeah. first solo record, which was great, and you felt that was about him. But he, if you listen to the lyrics, you know, there's quite a lot of lyrical platitudes in there. A strange kind of heaven in the danger zone. What, what, what does that mean? Or, or Rubicon, where he, he repeats, don't let the good slip away over and over again as if it's profound. And I, I, I have great goodwill towards Johnny Marr. Mm. I really do. I think he's one of the most important people in English music. And he is lovely. Everyone who's yeah. met him knows he yeah. is True, lovely. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I wish that the records did as much exci- as many exciting things as he says they do. You know, for me, it's, it's a three-star record. It's not a horrible record. It is too long. It's a double album. It shouldn't mm. be so long because there isn't enough variety on it. There's too much mid-pace, mm. mid-pace, state-of-the-art 2006 indie, to be honest. But, but it's like, it is big riffs and big instrumentation, and it's not a, here's a four-piece band. The, the, I really enjoyed it, and I, I'm, I, I agree with you. He's just one of the, the, the gems of music. But for me, this is the, the side of Johnny Moore I love is the wistful, sad one, and this, mm. it's actually there's only one mm. at the end. And after uh, 16 tracks, it's a very, very long record. We have a lot of big riff stuff. It's clearly framed as a lockdown record. He said he wanted to make a big city record, and then when he got isolated, sort of time went strange, and he went inside himself, and this is a, an interiors record. Are you getting that from it? Or? No, not really. Mm. I mean, I think everyone has to say about the records that they recorded during Lockdown. It's my lockdown record because you know it's just it's a story, isn't it? It's a story to give to the press. All, yeah. I, I think at ten tracks at thirty-five minutes, this would have been a really good record because mm. I think you wouldn't have that. Oh, give me a change of tone, give me a change of pace that you mm. get because it lasts for sixty-five minutes. At thirty-five minutes, I think it would have been a really good record. He says that he's. I've realised that I'm a rock musician. Rock music delivers something that pop music doesn't. Putting yourself in that space of darkness and being kind of epic. I mean, he's been doing this for a while to realise he's a rock musician at this late stage. Is well, you know, we all have revelations later in life, don't we? I mean, <laughs> I, I actually like. I like big rock, Johnny Marr. I, I, I like it a lot. I, it, some of those collaborations that we talked about, I just mm. didn't get him with the Cribs and mm. Modest Mouse is very much not to my taste. But this is like where he ought to be. Well, this is one of the things about Johnny Marr. I mean, he says, as you say. He's says he's rock but he's always been rock but he's, he's so many other things I mean he's, he's also Niall Rogers you know, mm. he's, he called his kid Niall after Niall Rogers 
the great Johnny Marr record, I, mean, that, I think that's why it's worked with so many people. You know, there are so many different parts of him trying to get out. I mean, if we could have the one record that contains every part of Johnny Marr, scratchy indie Johnny Marr, big rock Johnny Marr, lush ballad Johnny Marr. Electronic Johnny Marr. Electronic Marr. Ma- well, we've got a bit of electronic There's Johnny Marr, which, yeah. which is uh, yeah. especially the yeah. very first track, Spirit, Power mm. and Soul, which when I first heard it, I was just playing it through my computer speakers, not on headphones. So, is, is this Mars? Is this Mars? I thought it was, uh, it, it's a strong debt to Bizarre Love Triangle, mm. and you can mm. never go wrong with that. <laughs> you know, but if, if Johnny Marr would make that album where the, t- the many sides of Johnny Marr, I mean, <laughs> but that would be an incredible record. Yeah. Lucy, were you ever a Smiths person? Um, no, I'm not really cool enough to like the Smiths. You don't have to be cool, you just have to be old. But you must have come, you know, you must have had an encounter with them in the, over time. Is, is, oh, yeah, because they always play at Ducky, and I thought, oh, God, put some Christina Millian on. Come on, guys. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I'm a bit more. Um, Female fronted R and B is my thing. Sean, what did you think? Well, I quite liked it. Yeah. <laughs> I quite like it. And it is a record that you quite like. It actually gets best with repeated listening, though. Um, I agree is about the voice, but I have a theory is that because we're not familiar with his voice, it's not just about the set of pipes. It's about having heard it over the decades that you mm. know that guitar sound, don't you? And you mm. know the elements and what's going to happen. But because the voice is just so unknown, it took me a while to get used to that and a while to warm to it. And there's something about the psychology of that. But I thought it is really reflective of this just incredibly optimistic, really magnanimous person. Mm. There's loads of glam rock Bolan references to it, which I mm. always like within there. Um, and I really started to warm to it more and more and more. Um, I like the fact that he doesn't want to do the tortured artist sort of vocal on that or something that Mm. is going to be a little bit like the band that he used to be in I like the fact that some of it is quite sort of it's quite kind to the ears you know it's Mm. it's not you know you're not going to get an avant-garde Johnny Marr here Um, and I really just warm to him so much from this and I, I think it's better than Call the Comet which yeah. I liked again. I think this is much stronger, his last album. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a great track called Tenement Time, which is one of the mm. kind of lead tracks off one of the EPs mm. about his genuinely hard-up childhood in, in Ardwick. And it is optimistic. And yes. it is about seizing the future, forever is mine. He's, you know, the, the, there's, unlike certain people, unlike certain people mm. we know, mm. there's no self-pity in Johnny yeah. Marr. And, they, you know, there could quite well have been. He has every bit of, as much of a reason to, yeah. uh, you know, feel miserable as certain singers do. Yes. And yeah, he just, ref- it's, it's like an act of will. Or he, just he could have done Destroyed by Fame record and he could have had 12 tracks about whole. He, he is astonishingly well adjusted. I mean, when you meet him, you think he, he is incredibly well adjusted. And uh, and the goodwill, that, I mean, he's like the conduit, conduit for the goodwill that a lot of people still have towards the Smiths. A couple of times in the autumn, I, I saw people playing Smith songs. One was him supporting the Cortinas at Old Trafford Cricket mm. Ground. And there were 60,000 people singing along to every word of the Smith songs. And they weren't all mm. people my age. Mm. You know, mm. there were loads of kids there because it was the Cortinas. Then a couple of weeks after that, I saw Rick Astley and Blossoms oh, doing course. the Smiths yeah. at the Forum, yeah. which was incredibly moving. Because, um, again, it was yeah. it was a really young crowd as well. We were speculating before we went in, who would it be? And a couple of people said, it'll be old Smiths fans like us. I said, I don't think so. I think it'll be Blossoms fans and a few... Rick Astley ladies and there were a few Rick Astley ladies there were a few people like us but mainly it was 18 to 25 year olds who love Blossoms and they sang every word of every song and I found it very powerful and I don't blame Johnny Marr at all for wanting to harvest some of that love that exists to him I, I would too and he deserves to be loved I mean my, my feelings about his singing voice not being that strong do not affect my appreciation of him as mm. one of the great British musicians and someone who I think is wholly admirable 
Have we sold it to you, Lucy? You've been warming up to this, do you think? She's not looking mad at me, actually. Yeah, I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to find your email. I'm going to go through my emails and do some admin today and find the link. It's on on the streaming services now. You don't even need the link. It's out today. There we go. You've got no excuse. This is the the end run of Wuthering Heights is going to be transformed with Lucy being very kind of Mancunian and very sort of, uh, you know, undemonstrative. (laughs) And finally, we've all been there. Colouring our hair with marker pens, making coats out of bin bags, dyeing all of our leggings black with a strange and pungent thing which seems to have been born out of the roads of the Hanger Lane gyratory system. That's just me, though, isn't it? Mm. Yes, listeners, we have rebelled, even if it was a long time ago, and we're here to share our teen rebellion records. Placebo, black market music, as chosen by Lucy. Lost and Found by Jason and the Scorchers, as chosen by Michael. Missing the Brief Entirely, Andrew's rebellion record is ABC's The Lexicon of Love. Of course it is. And my selection, which I think is the template, everybody. Psycho Candy by the Jesus Mary Chain. So here is a track from one of them. This is Placebo with Special K from Black Market Music. Gravity, no escaping. Gravity, gravity, no escaping. Not for free, I fall down. Hit the ground. Lucy, I am going to start with you. What drew you to the dark side when you decided to go for placebo? Honestly, just thinking about this CD makes me feel nauseous. Yes. Um, And why is that? Because it's that, you know, teenage, oh God, the angst and all the (laughs) eyeliner. Mm. And like, the thing is, I, you know, I, (laughs) I did have a goth phase. Yeah. But... I didn't know like where to get a dog collar jewelry from, so I just bought like an actual yeah. dog collar. I, mean, I just went to a pet shop and bought a dog collar and a lead, and I wore the dog collar on my yeah. neck and the lead on yeah. my jeans. I don't know. Is that, is that what the actual goth did? I don't know. It's um, good though. But it's I was sort of pretending. Yeah. So I, I we went to see a placebo. Me and my mates in our goth um, get up, and then yeah. eventually I had to sort of have a coming out and say to them you know look I like Ask Club 7 <laughs> and I think it's important that I say that out loud and I have got the S Club 7 album and I am going to go home and listen to it and that is who I really am right. so and actually, that was very important actually S Club 7 is your rebellion yeah. album that was, yeah. what, that was yeah, the one yeah, where yeah, you yeah. fought against expectations she threw away the dog collar and never looked back yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she didn't stop moving well I mean, real me the idea of you having a teenage rebellion phase is, is you know considering you're so kind of normal and well adjusted now and completely you know unrebellious in your performance on stage is so restrained you know the notion of you having a teenage rebellion phase seems somewhat past the point. I just feel thrilled that you've called me normal and well-adjusted. I don't know if that's ever been said before. <laughs> so you dressed the part. I mean, was Brian Molko, for that brief moment that you went to placebo, mm. was he the ideal front person for rebellion? More so than Quite Joe? Quite sexy. The, I think I liked the one with the goggles. Right. But what I will say now to any young Mm-hmm. people listening you know if someone wears goggles yeah. as their get up I think just don't go near them that is a bad choice goggles really? 
That's quite what? a gog list, isn't it? Unless they're a welder. Goggles. I suppose. A welder. Oh, no, in your job. In your yeah, job, fine. fine. Goggles for fashion, I can't okay. get on board with. Okay. Catherine Nenshaw, uh, she's quite placebo, isn't she? I can imagine <laughs> so her listening to it in Thrushcross okay. Grange. <laughs> yeah, she is. She's totally a goth, yeah. Michael, what have you pumped for? I uh, was the album... Lost and Found by Jason the Scorchers, which yes. came out in 1985. Now, I was not a rebellious kid. I never skipped school. And this is surprising. I this did, is not a rebellious I d- record, I did. It? I did all my homework. Yeah. I didn't shout at my parents. Right. I didn't take drugs. Mm-hmm. I was just a really good kid. But this album got me in proper trouble. I mean, really proper trouble. Because I, I, I don't know anyone else who ever liked this record. Um, Describe it for someone who has never It is in the genre known as cowpunk. Mm. Okay. It, it is country played with heavy Rock speed I tried and to velocity. To it this morning, um, <laughs> I, 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 do, I don't blame anyone else for not liking it. But they they were playing at the Electric Ballroom in July 1985, mm-hmm. and I went up to see it. I went on my own because no one else wanted to see them. Got the train up from Slough. Now the Electric Ballroom, Camden. I'd never been to a gig in Camden before, and I was living out near Slough. To get back to Paddington, and I, I was in the front row of mm-hmm. the Electric Ballroom because I right. got there at the very beginning. So I was the last person out. By which time I just about got the last train from Camden. Got to Paddington to discover that I had missed the final train back to Slough. But I knew from previous experience there was a post train at one forty-seven in the morning that I could get, which would take about two hours to get to Slough. I'd get to Slough three forty-seven. Those mm-hmm. twenty miles, two hours, um, at which I could then walk home from there. I get home about half four, five. And I thought, by the time I was at Paddington, it was after midnight, don't call your parents, it's a school night, you'll wake them up, they'll be mad, you know, they'll expect you to come home, and I will come home. I got home at five in the morning to find my mum sitting in the living living room, going, where have you been? I I missed the train, I had to get the post train and then walk. Why didn't you call? I thought you'd be asleep. Parents never sleep when their children are out. (laughs) I have sent your father up to Paddington in the car to drive around looking for you, because we were so convinced something had happened to you. My dad got home about five to seven in the morning, had a cup of coffee, changed his clothes, and then went off to back up to London to work again. He didn't speak to me for about three or four weeks. I was not allowed to go out at all on a weeknight again until October that year. I had four months of not being allowed out on a weeknight. As a result of Jason the Scorchers. It's all their fault. Yeah, well, I blame Cowpunk. I blame Cowpunk as well for everything, really. That's a proper story. Mine yeah. pales in comparison. What about yours, Andrew? Well, you wouldn't think that Lexington of Love is a particularly no, rebellious record. No, come on, persuade us. I'm a very boring person, and I'm not a rebellious person. But when I, when this mm-hmm. record came out, this is, of course, possibly the greatest record ever made from mm-hmm. the Trevor Horn House of Hits, the yeah. grand, you know, Poison Arrow, Look of Love, All of My Heart. This mm-hmm. is grand, grand, epic, Burt Bacharach, disco pop, just incredible, still sounds amazing. That stuff wasn't really cool around our way. You're supposed to be in your raincoat listening to mm. Bunny Men, mm. who whom I do love, mm. um, and you were you were you were supposed to be listening to uh, late night John Peel records that were not produced mm. or barely played, in mm. fact, and certainly not written. And you were not supposed to like this stuff. And I thought this was the acme of what pop music was yeah. uh, was supposed to be. Also, girls liked it. Good way to get to talk to uh, girls. Yeah. You know. um, and I just thought this is completely beyond anything else that anybody else likes. Yeah. And uh, I felt a bit special listening to it. Did you did, dress the part? You can't get know. gold lame suits on, Can you not? in Merseyside. <laughs> Can you, you not made no. your own or got your mum to Out of Baco foil. And no, I don't think she, she was. Oh, she was, God, you should have gone across the Mersey because Lame R Us in Tranmere <laughs> in the early 80s <laughs> they, they had an go. incredible selection. Well, that's mm. the world for you. Yeah. Um, no, it just, it just felt like the opening of a whole brand new world. Yeah. And actually, it's 
it is still basically the music that I like. Nothing has really changed. Mm -hmm. It's got to be big, grand. Yeah. It's got to be theatrical. The songs have got to be amazing. And it's got to make life bigger. I'm not interested in people sitting in their bedrooms strumming away about how their girlfriends left them. Mm, it reminds me of uh, our downstairs neighbour who played all the time when it came out. And he was a communist fireman. Okay. And he played that nonstop when he came back from being a communist fireman. And eventually he bought his own home and we thought he's not so communist a as lot of money, A lot of money in being a communist fireman. <laughs> so a few years ago, probably about 10 or 15 years yeah. ago, uh, when I worked on the Word magazine, yeah. we used to make a podcast. And oh, for our 100th edition, yes. um, Abbey Road Studios got in touch and said, mm. do you want to use our studio right. to record an edition of the podcast? So that? we made a podcast oh. at Abbey Road. And on the way out, the staff of Word magazine, which is David Hepworth, Mark mm. Allen, and me, and I think it might have been Kate Mossman was with us. Mm. We said, we've got to, we've got to cross the we've got to do the Beatles Zebra Crossing job so we're doing the Beatles Zebra mm. Crossing and a car is honking 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 fearlessly mm. and we look around and it's a Rolls Royce and it's Martin Fry from ABC waving genially at us <laughs> as we cross the road so that was my, and Martin Fry lovely fella so there we go yes. what's yours Sean? well mine's just so sort of standard and template it's just sort of slightly embarrassing with all Psycho this. Candy yeah, by Jesus and Mary Chase. So you're before full. we came in here, you were saying, I've got the best rebellion record. I've got really? Psycho Candy. And now you're just retreating it's rapidly. It's as good as Literally everyone else as well. At least yeah. yours isn't S Club 7. <laughs> yeah, but that's better in a way. Everybody's thought around this. Everyone's thought laterally. And I am so stupid and so literal. I heard that thought. Music doesn't sound like that. Music doesn't sound like feedback. Music doesn't. Yeah. This isn't meant to happen. And I was reading all this stuff in the NME that were these riots at their gigs. Mm. And it was violent and it was exciting. And you weren't meant to be there and I thought yeah. oh, I think so they were surly they were Scottish they were ugly and yet behind that barrage of noise you have these absolutely perfect pop songs so it just works on that level I bought it on tape I probably bought it at the Twickenham record shop and they always used to frown on me because they used to go in and ask for banana rama and it was a bit of a tubular bell sort of shop and what I did is I wasn't allowed to cut my hair and I didn't have that stupid Cocteau Twins hair that I wanted or Jesus and Mary Chain. So I used to make it, I used to make it do that with sort of elaborate things. And the story about the markers and making a bit, a coat out of a bin bag, which I, I ironed the seams instead of sewing them. That's all me. And I dyed everything black and it smelt weird and it went purply and wrong. And I dyed a pair of boots black and they smelt of motorways and really disgusting. <laughs> so you, you I just went for this enormous nihilism and was so excited. And look where it got You me. went, you ironed a bin bag for rock and roll. Yeah. Well, that's we're in the eye. Well, but, when Andrew yeah. first knew me, I had Jesus and Mary Chain hair, but not mm. black, um, mm. still ginger. It was a mistake. <laughs> Nothing at the back and sides and loads of I don't think it's aged well, has it? <coughs> but it was a look. Although it was the haircut for boys about four or five years ago. What, what was it called? There was a particular name for the haircut and I can't remember what it was. But I liked it. The girls could do but, it too. But like my, my, my son had it. I kept going, Jim Reed, Jim Reed. Yeah. And he was like, what, what are you talking <laughs> about? What are you talking about? Yeah. Oh. We all and have our faces. Some of us are still in them. <laughs> Everyone's got mullets now. You know, mullet is a really uh, trendy yeah. thing to have now. It's been in and out so many times. We mm. don't know what's going on with the mullets. I think I've passed the point where I can grow one. <laughs> Finally, every week we ask our guests to choose the greatest song of all time to go onto the rolling playlists. 
You may consider this podcast a place where you can get classic recommendations as much as newfangled sounds, like a museum of music. Michael, what have you chosen to go onto the playlist? The greatest record of all time <laughs> is Roadrunner by The Modern Lovers. It has always been the greatest record of all time. Even before it was made, it was the greatest record of all time. <laughs> it is a record about the everyday. It's a record about driving a ring road in suburban Massachusetts and finding joy in that. And I've loved it since I first heard it. I first heard it, actually, because of Echo and the Bunny Men. It was uh, one of those features in NME where Ian McCulloch was picking his favourite records of all time. He actually picked um, I think she cracked from the first Modern Lovers album I went out and bought the first Modern Lovers album on the strength of Ian McCulloch saying that but it was Roadrunner like everyone mm. everyone mm. everyone who's like record goes Roadrunner's amazing <laughs> um, the, the finest commission I ever did as an editor I sent Laura Barton to drive every road mentioned in every version of Roadrunner there are eight different versions on various compilations and things she drove every single road she did it Period specific, if you listen to Roadrunner thrice, he talks about winding down the window and it's cold outside. So she went in January, <laughs> she did it at night, like in the song. She stopped at the stop and shop, like Jonathan Richmond does in the song. So yeah, that was that was kind of, it was kind of method music journalism. Mm. That's very, very method. Mm. Lucy, how about you? What have you chosen? I chose Concrete Schoolyard Yay. by Jurassic Five. Uh, I don't I really don't know a lot about music like you guys. I've loved listening to you all talk about music. It's amazing. Um but I mean, also, I found this very. This is an annoying question, isn't it? This is like, why what's is your favorite? Yeah, you know, your favorite ever song is annoying. Yes, yeah. That's why we ask. It's annoying. <laughs> what is the uh, <laughs> and this is a real. This is a good choice. Um, this is yes. a tune and a half. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, what is? You know, what's yeah. a song that no matter how many times you hear it, you just go, yes, it's mm. an absolute mm. banger. And it starts with that noise, that whoo, you know. Yeah, and I just yeah. hear that, and I go, like, yes. And I just thought this song always. Um, puts me in a great mood and that that's why I chose it. You'd it, wanted to pick Don't Stop Moving by S Club 7, <laughs> didn't you? But then you thought, no, I can't, not this podcast, oh, no. no. I what have I done? <laughs> I think we'll, we'll stick that on the playlist anyway because it's a hell of a tune. It's, it's a, a hell of a tune. tune. And in a week so like this, it's not like been this. a great week. You just need that playlist and need those tunes that are going to take you out of that mood. So it's the sound of Jonathan Richmond and Jurassic 5 go on the playlist. We're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we stick twigs in our hair, leer into the nearest window pane and go full Kathy, as I'm going to call it. Lucy, you are allowed to take a break from this because you've been <laughs> full pelt on stage all week. And I believe there were two performances in the matinee in the middle of the week. So you're all right. Michael, what's your closing time chatter? Uh, I, I've been obsessed with the Sackler family um, because mm. I watched Dope Sick mm. on, on oh, the television, yes. which was terrific. And then mm. after that, I promptly picked up Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keith. Which is great. His, yeah, his biography mm. of the Sackler mm. family, uh, which goes into you know so much detail about how that family... Addicted America to opioids, yeah. denied all responsibility, made fortunes of it, and then ran the company down as it faced incredible amounts of legal action so that when the rulings were finally made against Purdue Pharma, all the money was gone from it and the right. Sacklers had it all and they never paid the cost for what they did to America. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been chatting. That's what I chat about at the moment. It's an astonishing story. The Sacklers. Mm. Hmm, I must actually catch up with that show, though, because it does look good. Andrew, what is your closing um, time to I'm just glad that St. Petersburg has lost the Champions League final. Uh, uh, and I'm hoping for lots of Ukraine flags at the Carabao Cup final, uh, from not just from Liverpool fans, but from Chelsea fans as well. Mm. Because, you know, the role of football uh, in the whole sickening saga of oligarchs mm. and Russian money mm. is a small one, but it's a very visible one. And it has turned my stomach over the years to see, 
Gazprom all over the Champions League and to see Russian oligarchs piling, hiding their money mm. in football teams and, and for fans to sort of turn a blind eye. And you, we can't turn a blind eye anymore. I'm lucky, my team Liverpool, we were bought by a relatively okay large sporting conglomerate. Uh, I really feel for people whose clubs are bought by mm. a disgusting oligarch or a petrochemical mm. wealth fund. Um, I wouldn't want to have that dilemma. But this is something really clear and simple that people can do. I'd like to see... This podcast has such great influence among football fans. I would just like to see a lot of Ukraine flags at the Caribou Cup final, mm-hmm. just to show that uh, you know there are more things in the world than the fact that you can buy an enormously expensive player with money that has been looted from a country whose people are now being ignored by their rulers. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, everyone could turn up in Shrewsbury Town kit, which is blue and yellow, like the Ukraine flag, and that would also boost a small club. It would, <laughs> yes, but uh, yeah, I would, I, I would be worried for Shrewsbury Town then, you know, because you know the FSB do like to visit to check out <laughs> cathedrals and spires, so I'd be very concerned for Shrewsbury Town. Um, Sean, how about you? Uh, well, again, this is just a good distraction. Is Lizzo is back? Love I Lizzo. love Lizzo. Um, she's in Variety talking about. Um, she just does the honest stuff. She just looks absolutely fantastic. We go, yeah. I was got famous. I'm still really depressed. I'm still the, the stuff doesn't go away. I'm still me. I just deal with it. But I'm honest about it and just does that full. I'm just going to give you who I am. Mm. It's also going to be a reality show called Watch Out for the Big Girls. Okay. And she presides over this. So I'm going to be watching each and every episode because I think she is such a fabulous thing. And again, as saying, when the world news is a bit world news this week, you just need to cling to these people. Mm. And she is just fantastic. Five stars for Lizzo. Yeah, maybe ten. Mm. Right, don't forget you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist, which we keep mentioning because it's on Spotify and Tidal for the Spotify Refuse Nicks. The link is at the top of the show notes. Lucy McCormick, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Tickets are still available for Wuthering Heights at the National Theatre. Don't miss it. Michael Han, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure. It's the end of the podcast. So from me, Andrew, producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we will be joined by Stuart Murdoch of Bell and Sebastian. And among other things, we'll have Andrew's take on the Batman. <laughs> see you here. Same bat time, same bat podcast. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Sean Pattenden. The assistant producer was Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.